All right. Well, before you sit down, um, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And let me just read this morning's text. And um, then we can be seated. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd like to just um, read from verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So reads the word of God eternal his eternal word settled forever in heaven. Lord, give us understanding as we come to your word. You may be seated. So we've been working our way through Ephesians over the last months. And we we left off um, last time at verse 18 in chapter 2. And as we continue... um, Paul is emphasizing and making clear to his Christian readers this monumental truth that we have relationship with God. And we hear that a lot. It's not new news. But has it really grasped your heart and imagination? The God of all creation. If you're a believer here this morning, If you belong to him in Christ, you have relationship with him. We talk to God. That's an amazing thought. But before we get into um, our verses this morning, in verse 12, Paul reminds them of who they were before Christ saved them, which is really... Even more astounding to think that I can know God and actually dwell with God. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Paul says he wants them to remember. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. We were strangers. They were strangers. It's the Greek, exenos, meaning alien. From a person or a thing, without knowledge, without a share in. We had no share in God. Reminds me of um, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. When he saw that Peter and John were, you know, laying their hands on the people and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts 8, verse 18, he offered them money, offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And he said this, You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Brothers and sisters, that was our condition. Our hearts were not right before God. We had no part or portion with God. Before, verse 13 of Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were far off, and now God has drawn us to himself. We're near to him. So as a result of this glorious truth, Paul tells these Ephesian saints that everything has changed for them. Everything has changed. Again, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. These believers were once citizens of this world, but now they're citizens of heaven. They were once strangers to the promises of God, but now they're strangers to the empty promises of this earth. I can remember in my life believing promises given to me that were empty. You have too, because the world, the, the promises of this world are not like the promises of God, right? Yeah, they were once separated from Christ and belonged to this world, but now they're separated from the world and belong to Christ. No longer strangers to the covenants of promise. No longer alienated. Life has changed. Things have changed. All the promises of God belong to them in Jesus Christ. And that's true of every believer. All the promises of God my mom used to have a little thing called a promise box. <laughs> You've seen them, but they were just, uh, I don't know, you know, just maybe, I don't know, 100 promises in there. And she would pull one out and read it each day just to remind her that this is mine. You know, I can remember as a kid thinking, what does all that mean? I mean, I d it didn't apply. I didn't understand it. But mom cherished the promises and listen to a couple of these promises that now these believers partake in they're no longer strangers and aliens jeremiah 31 verse 33 and 34 but this is the covenant which i will make with them god speaking with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. What a promise. Do you want that promise? Isn't that a promise that would be precious to you? that God isn't going to remember your sin? Or how about Isaiah 41, verse 8 through 10? But, and I just grabbed a couple, right? But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, 
You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, some might object, saying, oh, wait a minute. Those aren't promises that are for me. It says clearly it's for Israel, right? Right in the text. But Paul would disagree. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, For all the promises, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And you think about when he says all the promises are yes in Christ. Well, Paul, which promises are you referring to? Are there New Testament promises? Or is he thinking of all the promises that God made to his people? Christians are no longer strangers, no longer aliens to the covenants of promises, and no longer aliens to the life of God. The promise of God, I will be your God, you'll be with me. Hmm. And all because of Jesus Christ, all because of Christ. Psalm 44, or 144, verse 15 says, How blessed, and this is in the NASB, but Psalm 144, verse 15, How blessed are the people who are so situated. I love that. Who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Is God your Lord? Is Christ your Lord? Think about your situation. Think about what glories are ahead. Paul gives three metaphors in, the, in verses 19 through 22 of, in uh, Ephesians 2. A city, a family, and a temple. So let's just look at these metaphors. In verse 19, we'll deal with the city first. We're in... We are citizens with all the saints. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And this is so interesting. Paul says at that time in verse 12, remember we read verse 12? Well, at what time? When you were apart from Christ, right? Before they were Christians. At that time they were strangers and aliens, really essentially to God into all the blessings of God and the life of God. They were non-citizens of God's heavenly city. They were excluded. Again, looking at verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth, the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before Christ saved us, we all lived as citizens of this world, right? Living out our godless life, engrossed in evil. I mean, living as the world, separate from Christ, without God. 
Um, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul gives a description of this worldly life as he reminds his readers of what life looked like when they were strangers to the covenants of promise and separate from Christ. I know in my own heart and mind, I can remember. It was dark. It was evil. My affections were not the same. I, I worshipped myself. I lived for myself. I pursued my own fame and comfort. So did you. Every one of us. And Paul's saying, remember. He reminds them of what life looked like in Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So that's one thing we did. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's a description of our, of our life pre-Christ. Before Christ res rescued us, we were all living this way, living under the influence of the evil one as citizens of this world. And we know that the whole world lies in the sway right, of the devil. That's 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The, the sway, the movement, the influence, the whole world. World, meaning the ungodly multitude. The whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to God and hostile to the cause of Christ. We were talking earlier, but, and I've said this and thought it many, many times. Why was Christ crucified? He fed the hungry. He encouraged the downhearted. He healed the sick. Why would you crucify a man like that? And we know the answer, right? Because he exposed our evil. He exposed the darkness. And men hate the light because they love the darkness. Yeah. This is what life looked like for us as citizens of this world. But now, but now, we are citizens of God's glorious kingdom. And because we don't belong to this world, but belong to another world, we look for and eagerly wait for the city where we belong, the place of our new citizenship, our new home. And really, true believers have looked ahead to their heavenly home. Um, they've always looked ahead. And we can see that. I mean, this has been the practice of those who belong to God. And we can see it in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn over to Hebrews 11. Let's read verses 13 through 16. And it is in the middle <clears throat> of the text there, but verse 13 is referring to this whole list of those who died in faith. 
Verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having <clears throat> seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is, is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It is something that grows in our hearts, is it not? A desire to be home. To be home. This isn't home. Home is ahead of us. Yeah. Citizens with all the saints. <clears throat> all the saints share in this heavenly citizenship. In Christ, we're all citizens of God's eternal kingdom. We belong together. We belong together in Christ, in God's city, because we belong to God. Right? That's our citizenship. It's where we belong. The city of our God is our heavenly home. It's where we belong. Listen to these wonderful... You're there in Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews 12. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel was the blood of animals. The blood that has purchased our citizenship is the blood of God, the blood of Christ, which speaks better. And then Paul, you know, these verses are familiar. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. There it is, that notion of, I'm, you know, looking forward to this. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's interesting there in verse 20. You, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you were talking to Christians, those who were saved. And yet they're eagerly waiting for a Savior? Yeah. Christ rescued their souls, and Christ will, um, well, verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We eagerly wait for our Savior, Christ, to come and glorify us with him, right? And get our new glorified body. And if you think of it in those terms, you know, I was in finance and I think in terms of, you know, debits and credits. But <clears throat> it's foolish. It is really foolish to invest so much in the temporal and not in the eternal. Amen? Amen. God help us. Now we're here, 
So it's not like we shouldn't do anything. I'm not suggesting that. But what is the priority? Should it be the temporal or the eternal? And he's going to, so we await our Savior eagerly, just waiting for him to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. what, What Paul's saying is, this is going to happen according to the ability of Christ. So, is it a sure thing? It's certain. It's absolute. Christians are citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of God's holy city. Second metaphor, the family. Look at verse 13, or 19 again, Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So a city and now a family. And all that we've been speaking of to this point in verse 19 It's all the language of Christian privilege. It speaks to the Christian's position, the Christian's privilege, which is only for Christians, only for true believers. So just short review. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but brought near to God in Christ. No longer citizens of this world, but citizens of the city of God. No longer a part of those who belong to this realm, but ones with the saint, but one with the saints, those who are citizens who belong to God's glorious heavenly realm. <clears throat> these truths are simply magnificent, right? When you think about these things, they're high, lofty. They're magnificent in and of themselves. But this next point. The Apostle Paul makes here in verse 19, it's, it's just amazing. It's amazing. We belong to the family of God. We are of God's household. God is our father. Christ is our brother. Believers are God's children, God's family. So, What does it mean to have God as our Father and Christ as our brother? I mean, just how exactly should we think about God's family, God's household? Each one of us have a different experience in our families. Some are just great, and and family is a blessing from God. But some families are very difficult, very difficult. So how should we think about God's family? What would that be like, to have God as your father, Christ as your brother? Well, let's listen to the word of God and see what it teaches us about how we should think about these things. Um, What does family life look like in God's household? It looks like God's compassion. Psalm 103. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
When we think of life in God's family, in God's household, we should think of his compassion. God's mercy. Jeremiah 31, 20, listen to the heart of God. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. God speaking. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Our God is merciful. When we think of life in God's household and God's family, we should think of God's mercy. God's kindness. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. Paul writes to Titus and says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But... When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we think of life in God's household, we should think of his kindness. God is generous, gives his best. Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Now suppose, Jesus speaking, one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. You guys know this. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? <clears throat> or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When we think of life in God's household, we should think of God's generous and gracious heart toward his family. We should remember God gives us his best. God gives us himself. God's tenderness. Galatians chapter 4. I love this. Because you are sons, this is Galatians 4 verse 6, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, because you are sons, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is such an endearing term. Papa. Daddy. Can you imagine calling God Daddy? Papa? When we think of life in God's household, we should think of God's tenderness. His sweetness. His endearment toward his family as we can now address him as Papa and Daddy. Father. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, 
and such we are. That's 1 John 3, 1. <clears throat> now we're thinking of his love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that pleasing sacrifice. You know, when we think of life in God's household, we should think of his love. God's goodness. Psalm 31, 19, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. How great is your goodness. When we think of life in God's household, what family life looks like, we should think of God's goodness. God is faithful and true. Revelation 21, verses 6 and 7. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be his son. That's accomplishment. I will be his God, he will be my son. When we think of life in God's household, we should remember and think of his faithfulness. His faithfulness. His holiness. A couple more. Ephesians 5.5 5. <clears throat> For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 through 18 do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God is holy. And we, when we think of his house, his household, his family, what it would be like. It's holiness. One more here with regard to holiness. Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. Listen to this. In the city, the new heavenly city, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He's the light. 
The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, when we think of God's, or think of life in God's household, we should think of his holiness. So, again, I'll ask, what does it mean to be in God's household? To have God as our Father and Christ as our brother. What does life look like in God's family, in God's household? Looks like his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, his generosity, his tenderness, his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, his holiness. And this is just a small sampling, just a small sampling from Scripture of what it means to be in the family of God. We are in the household of God. And Paul reminds his Christian readers that they are of God's household. And that's the point this morning. We're in that section of Scripture. God wants us to know that we belong to Him. That's the whole point of the message, right? A dwelling of God in the Spirit. We belong to Him. How would our lives look if we booted up every morning working in that truth and exercising and applying that truth? Well, essentially, that's what, that is what's happening to us. It's called sanctification. We love Christ more today than we loved him yesterday, even if it may not seem that way. Because that the salvation is of the Lord. He rescued, <clears throat> rescued your soul. It's his work to sanctify you, and it's his work to glorify you. But it's important that we remember and understand our existence is in God, in Christ. We live with him. And he wants us to know that we're in his family. Yeah. So we have a city. <clears throat> we have a family. And now the third metaphor, a temple. And Paul transitions to this third metaphor. As he does that, he pictures Christians as a temple. Look at uh, verse 20 of Ephesians 2, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Temple, not us. Metaphorically, uh, in reference to a company, company of Christians in this case, hmm. a Christian church as dwelt in by the Spirit of God. Paul is, in fact, referencing the church in this metaphor of a temple. He transitions to this picture, this third metaphor, 
here in verse 20, and he starts by describing the foundation. He says that the temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, how are Paul's readers to understand this foundation? And what does it mean when he says built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Are the New Testament apostles and prophets really the foundation of the church? Well, Paul said no, actually, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. <clears throat> For we are his fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. The foundation of the New Testament apostles and prophets was and is their message. And their message was and is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of God's message, all that they proclaimed as they were under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit, preached and taught God's holy word to his church, always directing the church to Christ, always directing the church to Christ. If only... That were the case in the church today. The church is in trouble. Well, I always qualify my, every time I say that, in my mind, the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the one that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail, is not in trouble. Amen. Amen. Because why? Jesus Christ is the builder. And he sustains and keeps alive each one of us. But how has the church gotten so far off track? I mean, down through the ages. We can talk about our own time and there's trouble. If only pastors and teachers and church leaders and shepherds would preach the word of God. You remember Acts 2.42, right? One of the pillars was they were dedicated. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, the teaching, the teaching. How well that would serve God's people, God's church, and God's glory. This is God's design for his church, his temple, that his people are built on the foundation of his word through the teaching of his apostles and prophets who always, always direct his church to his son, right? Always direct the church to Christ. In the whole of the book, we just talked about it this morning, Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. It is written of me. David wrote that, but he wasn't talking about David. 
And we know that from Hebrews chapter 10, where the pastor there preaching that sermon references that text to Christ. Christ is the point. He's the hermeneutic. Look at verse 20 of Ephesians 2. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Let me just read to you um, out of this. Uh, this is from the Bible Exposition Commentary. Um, let me read you this quote with regard to this verse. Quote, The foundation for this church was laid by the apostles and New Testament prophets. Jesus Christ is the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 8.14. The cornerstone binds the structure together. Jesus Christ has united Jews and Gentiles in the church. This reference to the temple would be meaningful both to the Jews and the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. The Jews would think of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, and the Gentiles would think of the great temple of Diana there in Ephesus. Both temples were destined to be destroyed, but the temple Christ is building will last forever. I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. The Holy Spirit builds his temple by taking dead stones out of the pit of sin, Psalm 40, verse 2, giving them life, and setting them lovingly into his temple. The temple of God, 1 Peter 2, 5. This temple is fitly framed together as the body of Christ so that every part accomplishes the purpose God has in mind. Unquote. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Um, Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, into Christ, who is the head, even, even Christ, uh, from whom the whole body, and this, is, this is what I want to emphasize, the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, every joint according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You know how important you are to me? And how important I am to you? And how important we are to each other? By design, God has called us, gifted us, and commissioned us to serve. For his glory. We're not serving, um, the end of it isn't that we're serving each other for the purpose of serving each other. We're not building an organization here and, you know, membership, um, well, <laughs> for ourselves. All that's going on, but it's not for us. It's for him. And that's, that's vitally important to keep at the forefront of your thinking. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. Amen. One more quote. Um, 
And before I do that, let me read First Peter 2 to that notion. Verse 4 and 5. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I mean, Really, the whole message is summed up in verse 22 of Ephesians 2, right? In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's the vitally important component we must remember. We are the temple. The church is the temple of the living God where we worship him. In Christ, we have our citizenship in the city of God. In Christ, we belong to the family of God. In Christ, we are the temple of God. In Christ, we are the dwelling place of God, for God, by the Spirit. That's what we want to remember. That's the takeaway this morning. We are the dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. I'll close with this. <clears throat> John chapter 17. This is intimate between Jesus and the Father. It's his heart wide open. Listen to this prayer. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. Does God want us to be with him? Does God want our fellowship? Does God want to dwell with us? Look at the cross. And treasure, treasure that truth. God wants my fellowship. God wants me to trust him. God wants me to enjoy him. God has invited me into the very worship session that has been in existence from eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are brought in to that worship session. We are seated in the heavenlies. We covered that earlier in Ephesians 1. God, help us to realize it and live it. Let's pray. Father, I'm just struck at these truths. They are expanding in my heart and mind. 
I pray that these truths would expand in all of our hearts, in all of our minds, and that we would enjoy God. We would know God. We would walk with God. We would trust in God. We would look to Christ. And we would understand that we have been purchased by God, for God. Cleanse our hearts of sin, Lord. We confess our sin. Establish your word to us as that which produces reverence for you. Open our hearts and minds. Cleanse our hearts of sin. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs>